Good day and welcome to another episode of Film Exploration with Ash Hurry. Today we continue season 8 where we're looking at films adapted from books and for episode 77 we'll be looking at a controversial thriller that caused a little stir at the time of the release of the books and the film and that is the Dan Brown adaptation of the 2006 mystery The Da Vinci Code directed by Ron Howard and starring Tom Hanks, Aldridge Two, John Reno, Paul Bettany, Alfred Molino and Sir Ian Malcolm. Dan Brown, a man who went into Hollywood not to be a writer, but a composer, born Daniel Gerhard Brown, wasn't a stranger to what we see from our central protagonist of his series of books. Robert Langton plays many similarities to the authors, does most authors who tend to write a character based on themselves, like how J.K. Rowling wrote her traits to Harry's mother, or Stephen King's traits to a sub-character in almost all of his books, a writer who can't find an ending. Dan's parents, once a church organist and the other a mathematician professor, were heavy influences in a series of books where most, if not all, usually unfold into a form of old-fashioned treasure hunt that usually unfolds in around 24 hours. One can't be shocked by his parents' occupation and a church organist and a mathematician when looking at his body of work and the themes they possess. Dan and his sister would often have nothing under the Christmas tree when it came to Christmas Day and would be sent on a treasure hunt to locate their gifts, sometimes even to the edge of town. Traits that have made their way into the Da Vinci Code, in fact, the relationship with Audrey Tattoo's character and uh, the grandfather, Jacques Saunier, mirrors him and his father in real life. Having done well in the a cappella group, he deep-dived into the music industry, releasing albums and CDs, becoming quite known with the release of one of his albums, Angels and Demons, and the cover itself was the Illuminati symbol actually used in the movie. It wasn't until 1993 when he was vacationing in, in Tahiti did he get inspired to start writing thrillers upon reading The Doomsday Conspiracy by Sidney Sheldon, and released in his first book in 1998 called Digital Fortress. After that, which uh, it didn't do too greatly, if I'm being honest, he wrote a few light-hearted books about how women should avoid certain people, especially men, under the pseudonym Daniela Brown. The book was called 187 Men to Avoid, a survival guide for the romantically frustrated women. After teaching for a little bit, he quit to become a full-time writer where he was self-promoting his latest release, Digital Fortress. After Digital Fortress came Angels and Demons, which is the first book to feature the uh, the character Robert Langton, the Harvard symbologist made easy by the eyes by Oscar winner Tom Hanks, my favourite of the movies in my opinion. Straight after that he continued with the protagonist of Robert Langton and wrote Deception Points in 2001. If I'm being completely honest, those three books didn't do that greatly. They sold less than 10,000 copies. I mean, it wasn't until the fourth book was hitting the shelves that people really start paying attention to this once musical composer from New Hampshire. The fourth was called The Da Vinci Code, and it was the third in the Robert Langton saga and became an instant bestseller. Go to the top of the New York bestselling list in its first week. It is considered one of the most popular books ever released for its time. 81 million copies had been sold worldwide as of 2009. Dan Brown then followed up The Da Vinci Code with The Lost Symbol, Inferno, and more recently, Origin. Three of them have been made into a film where we are here to talk about the first one, The Da Vinci Code, the film that shook the world with its religious conspiracy theory and radical idea of a bloodline from Jesus Christ. Dan Brown goes on the record and says that he isn't anti-Christian. He did some research and thought this would be an interesting debate to have, and he wanted to create this conversation to the world. He said that any conversation is a good conversation. 
The popular and rapid success of the book already opened eyes at Hollywood and Ron Howard signed on for director, reuniting him with Tom Hanks as the lead character as Robert Langton after working together in Apollo 13 back in 1995. Interestingly enough, though, Bill Paxton, who he co-stars in Apollo 13, was the first choice for Robert Langton. Um, but when Robert, when Tom Hanks signed on, he was on a, well, I think when he approached Bill Paxton, he wasn't available and thus the role went to Tom Hanks. And he has now played Robert Langton three times, uh, Angels and Demons, Da Vinci Code, and more recently Inferno. This is Tom Hanks's only live action sequel. Only other sequel he's actually dipped his toes into is his voice in the Toy Story franchise. Before Tom Hanks's was considered since Bill Paxton turned down a role, I mean, other actors were considered like Russell Crowe, um, and he was almost cast, but then I think Ron Howard was looking at Tom Hanks. I think other people that was they were looking at was George Clooney and Hugh Jackman, but they were considered a bit too, you know, a bit too suave, and they needed someone who could, you know, accurately portray an academic. Saying that, though, I mean, both Hugh Jackman and George Clooney have portrayed academics, haven't they? So there you go. Tom Hanks, though, a two-time Oscar winner, wasn't the only star to hit this movie. The book attracted so much attention that this film attracted talent from all over the world with an international cast. I mean, Sir Ian McKellen, French superstar Jean Reno, you might know from Leon, another French superstar, Drita Tattoo. Then you got Paul Bettany, who was coming on the rise as a British actor, and then Alfred Molina. Now, it is said that Dan Brown wrote the role of Bijou Fache, the, the French detective, with Jean Reno in mind. And if anyone speaks French, his character's name is actually a quite a provocative sounding name. It actually means angry fucker, which I'm sure got a nice laugh in France. And if you speak Italian, you may come to know the development of one of the main characters, Alfred Molina's character of Bishop Manuel Aragorosa. The word Aranga and Rosa literally means red herring, which the producers had no idea how to do. They didn't know about this because there's no Italian people on the crew. So if you do know Italian, you'd have known that Alfred Molina's development as a character um, becomes an antagonist at the end, the big red herring. The producers had no idea how this film was going to do, given the controversy of the subject, but many knew it would be a hit because curiosity trumps ethics in the cinematic world. They originally had to make The Da Vinci Code a standalone movie because they didn't know if they were going to make another one. So they removed all the sub-story about Robert Langton already solving a case at the Vatican in Angels and Demons. You see, Angels and Demons comes before this movie in the diegetic world, but this movie became a hit. The second it did, they started production on Angels and Demons, but wrote it as a direct sequel rather than a prequel in the books. The Da Vinci Code roast, um, it grossed over $740 million worldwide, which is just a ridiculous amount at the time. The film was considered a failure by many critics, but that did not stop people from going to see it. You know, three quarters of a billion at the box office is reason enough to begin production right away on the next adventure of the saga of Robert Langton. The Da Vinci Code was the fourth highest grossing film in 2006, which was quite impressive, seeming Casino Royale, Daniel Craig's debut Bond film, had come out the same year. The second Pirates of the Caribbean movie had come out that year too. I mean, I think that was the number one film in 2006, amongst others like Cars came out that year. The third X-Men movie, Mission Impossible 3, Over the Hedge, Happy Feet, The Departed. It was a very big year, so for The Da Vinci Code to be sitting fourth in that list is ridiculous. 
The Da Vinci Code came out in full storm and was the opening movie at the 2006 Cannes Festival. Producer Brian Glazer had to actually cancel 26 interviews at Cannes because of the growing controversy this film was advertising. I mean, the film was originally banned in India on its release, but the court overruled saying the film is based on a book, so the book would have to be banned, not the film. The Da Vinci Code is basically suggesting that there is a secret society called the Priory of Sion who is there to protect one of the biggest cover-ups in human history, which is that Jesus Christ had a child with Mary Madeline, and the job of this secret society was to protect this truth to the world. Otherwise, well, you can imagine the turmoil of the Christian society. Well, not even the Christian society, the whole society of the world, to believe that Jesus Christ had a child. The Priory of Zion is actually, of course, fictitious society that was created as a hoax sometime around in the late 1950s. Also, the rose line in the movie is very much fictitious, much to my disappointment when I was looking for it in Paris when I first saw the movie. If you do want to, um, if you don't want to deep dive into Dan Brown, however, um, and you want to see him in the movie and see what he looks like, because, you know, you, you hear of all these famous authors, but you never really can picture what they look like. He does make an appearance in this film. If you look closely at the book signing that happens right at the start of Robert Langton, he is stood directly to the left of um, Tom Hanks. Um, and his wife is actually in the movie uh, later on in the movie. You have to look out for her, though. So Dan Brown convincingly tries to prove this theory of Jesus Christ having a bloodline with works of Leonardo da Vinci, who may hint at this truth which work with works such as The Last Supper. I think what Dan Brown does so brilliantly in this book that doesn't necessarily get stretched out in this film's dialogue is the common gap between faith and knowledge. Dan is basically saying that, yeah, okay, the Bible may have told a true story. However, it could be talking in metaphors or code and not literally. Every time the Bible, for instance, mentions 40 days or 40 nights, it literally means at that time many days and many nights, not literally the value of the number 40. Dan Brown chooses not to entertain the idea that people of faith cannot or would not accept the truth, even if it may clash with their beliefs, simply saying they are smart people that can still hold faith no matter what happens or what will be told to them. There is a point in the novels that says that the secret of the Holy Grail should be, in fact, kept in secrecy to maintain the faith held by over a billion people on the earth. Surely that is more important. But later in the book, he also says the same thing. He says something that contradicts what he said earlier and says that as things later develop, that people who truly believe in God will be able to accept the idea that the Bible is full of metaphors, not literal transcripts of the truth. People's faith, in other words, can withstand the truth. I mean, the controversy of this book and the film raises is, you know, what it does is in the pages of history necessarily tells us one truth or they try to tell us another truth, but it depends on interpretation and perspective. But it's basically saying we're not looking closer at it. And Dan Brown is actually putting a microscope to these, uh, you know, these works of art and seeing these hints that people are trying to say, actually, this is the truth. The clever thing that Dan Brown does is to have these, inter you know, reinterpretations of frequently told stories like the, you know, the life of Jesus Christ, uh, the Pentacle, and that entire sequence about the real meaning behind the Da Vinci's Last Supper. Even missing gospels that made it into the Bible are mentioned in the book and also now in the film. There's also a section in the book where Langton, in, in, you know, which is very interesting, um, talks about the Disney movie The Little Mermaid. And he says that recasting it as an attempt by Disney to show the divine femity, uh, femi femininity that has been lost. What Dan Brown is trying to say is that Disney had Ariel, the main character in The Little Mermaid, had it as red. She she, she should have had blonde hair. Um, and it's described that uh, Ariel should have blonde hair. But 
she has red hair and Disney chose her to have red hair as a reference to paganism and a symbolic grail story. The real reason is rather ironic because her hair was changed to red because they wanted Ariel to be different from another famous mermaid that came out at the same time Disney released Little Mermaid and that was Madison in the film Splash. And that film, ironically, is the film that was directed by Ron Howard and starring Tom Hanks. It was the first time they reunited. Um, even more ironic is that Tom Hanks also went on to play Walt Disney himself in Saving Mr. Banks. But you can make these kind of references all over Hollywood if you look hard enough like they do in The Last Supper. The film does tackle some well-known interesting locations, the Louvre, some famous churches in England, and of course Westminster Abbey. The Louvre was a complicated procedure. They were allowed in the Louvre, but they weren't allowed any equipment on the floor during opening hours. All filming had to take place at night. Also, the film crew was not allowed to shine a light at the real Mona Lisa, so replicas was used to film the um, uh, the Mona Lisa scenes. Instead. I think they used about five replicas in total. Obviously, no blood or any mysterious writings were allowed on the floor, so all of that was shot at Pinewood Studios and then reimmersed with the uh, shots they uh, shot in the Louvre. When it came to shooting in London, that proved actually a little more difficult and complicated. Officials from Westminster Abbey refused to allow filming to take place anywhere inside, claiming the book was theologically unsound. So they shot in Lincoln Cathedral instead, which is a beautiful cathedral if anyone's ever been there. At Lincoln Cathedral, they have this uh, bell, and it's called Great Tom, kind of like how the clock's called Big Ben in London. And Great Tom, like Big Ben, strikes every hour. But during filming, when they're doing the Da Vinci Code there, and I think it took place between 2005, between August 15th and August 19th, which is kind of cool because I'm actually recording this episode on August 19th. Um, yeah, it was silent for the first time since World War II because they were filming the Da Vinci Code and it's only ever been silent those two times, which is a very interesting fact, I thought. But there is no denying this film's turned some curious eyes when the book and film came out and the film draws out some interesting themes. I mean, the theme of power, love and lies are frequent in this story of this, you know, treasure hunt basically some of the characters seek to grail because it's the embodiment of the highest spiritual truth in christianity langton seeks to grail to uncover the truth but his quest is rather an outgrowth of his inadvertent involvement in this murder investigation so he has really no choice he's been dragged into this but you know can't help but get into it however you know once he is involved you know he is committed to finding truth only the grail can provide you know, at first, Sophie seeks the Grail because it's meant to mean so much to her grandfather. He has left clues telling her how to find the Grail, knowing it will lead her to this vital truth that she still hasn't revealed to herself yet. Other characters, such as Teabing, seem to seek the Grail more out of the desire to possess the most powerful truth in the world. Teabing's deep knowledge of the Grail seems more academic than spiritual, and he uses lies, betrayal, and violence to get what he wants, which what makes Sir Ian McKellen such a good actor, because you needed a good actor to correctly portray Teabing and his complex personality. Sonier and the Priory Zyron are a group dedicated to keeping the Grail and its truth hidden so that no one, especially the Catholic Church, can destroy it or use it to enhance their power. It is the Sonchar, or Keepers of the Grail, who alone know its hiding place. The Priory is the protector of the Grail's truth. Now, Bishop Aaron Gorosa, and we know what that means, seeks the Grail to help cement Opus Dei's reputation and build its power as part of the Catholic Church. As a member of Opus Dei, Aaron Gorosa desires to know the truth hidden within the Grail and uses the help of Fash to mistake, uh, you know, to slow down Langton and also summon the help of Paul Bettany's character Silas. You know, however, he is willing to engage in or accept underhanded tactics and lies to get it as well. I mean, 
Aaron Garosa willingly follows the dictates of the teacher to, to reach the Grail. Even when he learns of the murders committed during this mission, he rationalizes them as perhaps a necessary evil because the prize is so valuable. The Catholic Church is described as, uh, you know, they're described as seeking the Grail to either destroy it or to keep it forever hidden on and, and keep the secrets um, just, you know, locked away to never tell anyone in the world. The church was propagated countless lies about Christianity and its history to retain unquestioned power and authority over the world's Christians. I mean, the revelation at the end that actually brings people together, and more importantly, if you take away the conflict the church has with the secrecy, with the grail, with the quest, I mean, the story, like most others, is a story between good and evil. As Teabing says in an ironic fashion, only the worthy will succeed. Well, listen, that's all I have time for with The Da Vinci Code, truly one of the best novels ever written that caused quite a stir. Dan Brown is truly a genius and no one, you know, one to really deep dive into his world. His book should not be ignored now. And I think a lot of people know that. I think every, once Da Vinci Code came out, people went to revisit Angels and Demons and Digital Fortress and, you know, more are coming. And hopefully following the beloved Mickey Mouse wearing Robert Langton as well, which is always a nice little... Uh, uh, thing that he has the watch that he wears which is explained in the book but not in the film you only see it a few times so if you want to know why he wears a mickey mouse watch you should read the book dan brown has actually gone and said that robert langton is his alter ego the guy that he wishes he could be and it's very evident when you look at his background of a mathematician as a father and a spiritual woman who works in a church as a mother and a puzzle fanatic as a child did this collection of novels come together in a very spiritual way but anyways, that's all I have time for with this episode. You can follow me on Instagram, Film Exploration uh, AH, or lowercase or one word. And I'm also on Spotify, Google, and Apple on iTunes. You can drop me a review there. Uh, but once again, thank you again for listening with Film Exploration with Ash Hurry.